If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Exodus chapter 40. We're going to close off a series in the book of Exodus and turn next week into the Gospel of Mark chapter 11 if you want to read ahead. But Exodus chapter 40. Um, have you guys ever had those mornings in January where you're quite snug in your bed and you just know that once you leave your bed, it's going to be freezing cold? And you know that, that that's the last thing on your mind at that, at that time of the morning, to get out and enter the freezing cold. I think there actually has some, some scientific backing to that feeling. Uh, those of you familiar with science, there is a uh, theoretical temperature at which all subatomic particles can't move. It's called absolute zero. Uh, that's zero degrees Kelvin for those of you. Uh, that's negative 273.15 degrees Celsius and negative 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit. At that temperature, there is no heat, there is no life, there is no movement. Where we are in the book of Exodus is quite a different place than where we began. The book of Exodus, chapter 1, begins with the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, enslaved four centuries long in the country of Egypt. It was a cold day in Egypt. The people had no life. The people had no hope. They didn't have any plan of moving anywhere. And then chapter by chapter, event by event, God pulls the people of Israel out of Egypt through his mighty hand, and he leads them out of that uh, those days of slavery, those centuries of slavery, he gives them identity, he enters into a relationship, he gives them the law and instructions on what it means to walk with God. But all of Exodus is moving to what we're going to see in this final chapter. In fact, uh, this final chapter <laughs> we've been waiting for, for uh, like 15 chapters, because there were 15 chapters of meticulous detail where God said, this is this house, this sacred tent I want you to build, and until this tent is built, don't go anywhere. And so those instructions came about the third month out of Egypt, and then for nine months, Israel doesn't move. They are in the wilderness, building every piece that's going to go inside this sacred tent. They're constructing it. They're making curtains. And it's moving to chapter 40. I want to walk through chapter 40 under three headings. A glorious work, a glorious presence, and then a glorious mission. Uh, the first 33 verses describe the completion of the glorious work. Let me start by reading verses 1 through 11. Exodus 40. Those of you who love construction and details, you're going to love the first three to three verses. The rest of you, the payday is in verse 33. You have permission to kind of check out till we get to verse 33. <laughs> verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. So by the way, the calendar for Israel is set up on the day that they, are, they were brought out of Egypt. So this is one year later, 
On the first day of the first month of this, at the end of this first year of deliverance, we are going to set up God's house. Verse 3 says, place the ark of the covenant law in it and shield the ark with the curtain. So by the way, this is, we're going to watch this scene. It's going to move from the inside out. So we're in the, 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 the heart of the tabernacle. It's called the Holy of Holies. It's the most sacred place that only one person can enter one day a year. That inside there is the Ark of the Covenant and where the Ten Commandments uh, will be placed. Verse 4. Then bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burned offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. Then it says, take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it in all its furnishings and it will be holy. So you, you get this picture. This Everything is put in place. And then they symbolically anoint this. They consecrate this building for God to do amazing things by going from piece to piece to piece and putting this sacred holy oil over it. Uh, it in many ways, it's a prayer. God, use this place. Verse 10 says, Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar, and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Then you need to consecrate those who are going to work inside this holy tent. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their fathers so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Verse 16 is key. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. Moses is not uh, changing the game plan. He's doing what God has said so that God's house is arranged in God's order. And just when you thought we had enough details, we go on. Verse 17. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as, as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement covered over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstands in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burnt fragrance and incense on it as the Lord had commanded him. And then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle, he set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. 
They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Those of you who were sleeping, payday, verse 33. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. That's a key, that little last three or four words there. And so Moses finished the work. This is the, the glorious work that this train of deliverance stopped in the middle of the wilderness to make sure it was done precisely as the Lord had commanded. And if you remember earlier, why? Why this tent? Why this sacred house? It was because inside that house, the people of God would have their sins atoned for. In that house, sacrifices would be brought Penance would be made. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Holy of Holies, there would be this uh, sacrifice of atonement to even, it says, cleanse the temple itself from its uh, wickedness. And again and again, this is how the Old Testament people stayed in communion with the living God. And that's why they couldn't press on. You can't move on without God. And this house needed to be done and finished according to the Lord's command so that God could cleanse the people, stay with the people, remain with the people, and then, as we'll see, bless the people. It was a glorious work. Life can begin now. That's why you stopped, so that life can begin. Uh, about a month before I was married, uh, my father rented me this very nice, luxurious apartment for $220 a month in uh, Indianola, Iowa. And uh, as I walked up, it was one of these, it was in the town square, and we were on the second floor, so the building was 100 plus years old, and as I walked up this side stairway that went over like a storefront in the courtyard, I walked by some cockroaches. Um, They never got all the way up to our apartment, I'm pretty sure. But it was a, kind of a privilege that before I was married, we got this little apartment, uh, this two-room wonder, and we got, I got to paint it and clean it, and then, you know, early on, then we got to put all the seven pieces of furniture we had together to make our little home, right? And it was. It was this glorious work so that our life could begin together. That's what's going on. That's why this is so significant, why the book of Exodus spends chapter after chapter and verse by verse to give all these details. These things had to happen so that life could begin with God and that hearts could be made right. That's why that verse 33 is so beautiful. Moses finished the work. This is Moses' greatest work. I know it's tempting to be like, oh, it was, it was the ten plagues, it was the Red Sea. Guess what? Moses didn't do any of that. He was just the, you know, the middleman. But Moses gets the credit for this. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it mentions Moses was faithful with God's house. But it says that one would come later who was of greater honor than Moses. And it's tied to the, in the Gospel of John, one of the beautiful things, at the end of Jesus' life, while he's hanging on the cross, do you remember what he says? It is finished. What Moses finishes is a good work, even a glorious work. But it's pointing ahead that Jesus dies on the cross so that we could be made with God forever. 
And life can begin with God. So Moses' work is a good work, but it's not the great work pointing ahead to Jesus saying, it is finished on the cross. Atonement has been made. And an atonement doesn't have to be repeated over and over and over again. It doesn't need multiple sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. Jesus was the perfect substitute between humanity and God, and now no sacrifice is left. In fact, the entire book of Exodus is all about Jesus. Let me read to you a quote from Pastor Phil Riken that just summarizes the book of Exodus, saying, this book is all about Jesus. He writes, the book of Exodus is, re- is really Jesus' story. Jesus is the Moses of our salvation, the mediator who goes for us before God. Jesus is the lamb of our Passover, the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is our way out of Egypt, the deliverer who baptizes us in the sea of his grace. Jesus is the bread in the, wil- in the, in the wilderness, the provider who gives us what we need for daily life. Jesus is our voice from on the mountain, declaring his laws for our lives. Jesus is the altar of our burning through whom we offer praise up to God. Jesus is the light on our lampstand, the source of our life and light. Jesus is the basin of our cleansing, the sanctifier of our souls. Jesus is our great high priest who prays for us at the altar of incense. And Jesus is the blood on the mercy seat, the atonement that reconciles us to God. The great God of the Exodus has saved us in Jesus Christ. It's a glorious work that Jesus has done. And this is why Paul will say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Why? For in it is the power of God to save from beginning to end, first to last. That is Jesus' glorious work. And those who trust in it begin their life with God. But the book of Exodus doesn't end with this glorious work finished, and neither does our lives. Let's press on to verses 34 and 35. It says, look what happened. You can just imagine this. Uh, I, I can't fathom exactly how long it took on that New Year's Day for uh, Moses to set up the tabernacle, but I'm guessing a while. Right? Did you catch all the details? He's got this inner tent that he constructs. He's got the... Uh, He's got the Ark of the Covenant in there, and he has to like put this whole curtain around it, and then he comes out, and then there's some pieces of furniture in the, this other tent that are key, and then outside of that tent, there's this altar, and there's this basin for washing, and then there's a gigantic courtyard around that. It took a while. But it says, when he finished the work, and it doesn't say, but in my imagination, it was immediate, as soon as it's done. When the, when the flap of that last courtyard is shut, look what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I mean, there's this numinous presence of God comes down, and they witness it, and it was so intense. Verse 35, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. At the completion of the glorious work, there was this glorious presence that had come down. At this moment, the God who is far above us became very near. Um, A couple of 25-cent theological words are transcendence and imminence. Transcendence is speaking of God's unique, utter holiness, that he is so different from us. 
And that's this picture of this glorious present that when it came down, no human being could come inside that tent. Uh, transcendence is what you feel when you, you're before Niagara Falls and you witness this marvel and listen to the thunder of the water. Transcendence is how you feel when you look out on the front range in Colorado or you climb up onto a 14,000-foot peak and you look out and you're like, I am small. But the one thing that's even amazing about natural transcendence is even though you feel small, you feel refreshed. It's all fitting and right in the world when transcendence is big and we are small. But what goes on next is not just transcendence, it's imminence. And imminence means God draws near. He comes down and he is among the people. Uh, it's not true theologically that God is, you know, a million miles above the earth. That's not, he's not dwelling way up high. But this idea that he, would, that he would come down and be on the street level of the people in this house. One of the other pictures you'll see in the book of Leviticus is when the Israelites begin to travel to the promised land, every time they set up camp, everybody sets up their little tribe around the tabernacle. So effectively, God is your neighbor. He is the tent next door. And so God is coming to be close to his people. It's, it's Niagara Falls power and yet like sitting on Santa's lap, closeness. I mean, Santa in some ways uh, is a, 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 a comparison, uh, uh, not a great comparison compared to God, but listen to this. Do you know why kids are petrified to sit on Santa's lap at the mall? Because he's a transcendent figure. He lives in the North Pole. He flies through the air. He's got these, these reindeer that can fly, and he's got elves, and he's mysterious, and he can get everything done in a single night. Like, he's, like the, he's like a super Avenger. And then you're telling the kid, hey, go sit on, go sit on his lap. You'll be fine. That's why kids are crying. Right, but this is the, it's, take that and you know, multiply it by a billion. That's what it's saying that the holy, majestic God who created everything and has all the power in his hands says, crawl up here, my son. Crawl up here, my daughter. We are drawing near. In the, in the history of redemption, after Jesus finished the work on the cross, he rose again three days later. He dwelt with his early disciples for 40 days. He ascends into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. And then a few days later, about 10 days later, there was this great event on a, on a festival called Pentecost. And on that day, God's glorious presence came down again. But this time, it wasn't this isolated thing inside a single tent. This glorious presence was the person of the Holy Spirit. It actually came, he came down and he dwelled in the hearts of every person who walked with God. It was so significant, this coming of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus in Luke 24, 49, before he ascends, he says, I know you're excited about me being resurrected, but I want you to, I want, I want you to I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, who the Father and I have promised. He says this, though, stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. His whole point was, hey, you may be a little giddy right now to go and talk about the resurrected Messiah and all these sorts of things, but until you have the glorious presence, the person of the Holy Spirit, alive in your life and active in the church, you guys just chill out. 
it's not that different to Israel. You need to chill out here until this tent is done and the glorious presence of God comes and dwells among the people. But when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, and ever since, any person who trusts in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and he dwells in their life. They are filled with this glorious presence. They know the intimate nature of God, but they also know his power. And a church that doesn't know the Holy Spirit's power or an individual person that doesn't know the Holy Spirit's power should chill out until he comes. And this is why it's so important for those of you, you know, especially you call Cornerstone Church uh, your home, would you be praying that the Holy Spirit is active and powerful in this church? If I stand up to preach and I preach the best sermon I've ever preached, but the Holy Spirit is not working through me, it, it, it's at best, it's a TED talk. It won't change a single person's life. Same idea, when you get up in the morning and you, you pick up your Bible to read, would you pray, Holy Spirit, fall afresh on me. Holy Spirit, help me to see the wonderful things in this book that you have for me. Because otherwise, you might read it and get nothing. But the Holy Spirit loves to show up where he's invited. The Holy Spirit loves to be to honor the Son and honor the Father. And so we, we should plead for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction on our hearts and to comfort us in the gospel. We should plead for the Holy Spirit to help us to understand God's word and to apply it and obey it in our lives. We should pray for the Holy Spirit to fall on our city and bring healing and hope. We need the glorious presence. We go from the glorious work to the glorious presence but there's more. Now they are to move forward on a glorious mission. Verse 36 says, In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So once this tabernacle was set up so that people could have atonement with God, and then once the glorious presence settled, the people of Israel would wait and watch for the movement of God. And if that cloud lifted and started moving in a direction, they would, they would follow. They would follow God wherever he led. And where God's going to lead them is ultimately to the promised land. Where God is ultimately going to lead them is to, they have some military battles to face. They have uh, different uh, geographic areas to settle inside the promised land. And they have to go and finish the mission that God has for them. They got to listen. They got to watch. Much the same way we need to, both as individually and corporately, we need to be listening and watching God. Where is he leading us? Where is he calling us to go? Um, you know, in history, there are all sorts of, uh, I think, fascinating stories about why people get off mission or why people get on mission. Uh, one of the more interesting characters, at least in my opinion, was the man, uh, St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine lived in the 3rd and 4th centuries, um, or 4th and 5th centuries. He uh, he was born pretty uh, high up the food chain, and he was uh, kind of the ancient standard of like living a life of luxury before he became a follower of God. 
He had women on the side. He had money. He, he was kind of this, one of these scholars that tried to be very erudite and look like he had all the answers. He dabbled in different religions. But then he had a profound conversion to Christianity and submitted his life to God. And he had determined in his life to just become a contemplative. Like he was going to devote his life to prayer and to study. Um, but he would have been off mission if he would have continued doing that. And so what the people did and what a bishop did is they yanked Augustine out of his plan to study and pray. And he said, no, you're going to come and be a minister. You're going to be a priest. Eventually, you're going to be a bishop. And by the way, being a pastor, uh, it it can be tough. And, And Augustine knew it. Books don't talk back as much as people. Right? And he... This is the thing, to be on mission, he had to leave this life of spiritual contemplation to go and serve a church and to love people. And so sometimes when we're called on mission, it's to call us away from seemingly spiritual things into service. Interesting, a biblical character that has almost this beautiful track record of faithfulness to God, but one glaring, and a few others, but one glaring mistake was King David. King David was this man of courage and faith, He listened to God. He wouldn't raise his hand against uh, the anointed king. But after a season of success, it it says in, um, uh, I think it's 1 Samuel 16 or 2 Samuel 16, it says, "In in the times when kings go off to war, David stayed home. Right? The king had a mission. He was supposed to be out there leading his people, but he stayed home. And it was in that staying home moment where he found, saw a beautiful woman bathing, the wife of another man who he invited her into his bed. A series of events, he had a conspiracy to have the woman's husband killed. Eventually he is exposed for his indiscretion, he repents. But do you know what? The story doesn't end until he goes back to be a fighting king. Read through that. For, it's, I think it's 16 and 17 of 1 Samuel. Uh, he has to get back to being a faithful king. And Joab calls him out. Hey, you got to go be a king. you got to get back on mission. And eventually David goes back out. Christianity's clear mission is set forth in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is the resurrected Jesus. And he says, uh, he gathers his disciples, and he tells them that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he says, therefore, therefore is always important. Therefore, what are we supposed to do? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. By the way, that means Sunday school teachers, we will never run out of lessons. Teach them to obey everything, not some of the things, everything that the Lord has given us. And then Jesus makes this great promise of his ongoing presence. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. That's our mission. Jesus finished the work on the cross. Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit into our lives. And Jesus has sent us out on mission to make disciples. There's all kinds of subtle threats out there. We could be like Augustine, where we kind of have me and Jesus Christianity. That's it. I'm just going to be this little contemplative and read my Bible and pray, but not be on mission. We can get distracted by politics. Can I ensure you, tell you right now that whoever you vote in November is not the Savior of the world? He has come, he has died, he has risen, and he is coming again. 
how you vote will have this much impact on the world, but Jesus will have this much. So seek him, right? And we can get off on mission if we spend all our days trying to make disciples of a political party and not the king of kings. We're not going to be able to solve all of earth's issues. And so do care about the things going on in our world and our culture, but we need to make disciples of Jesus. You know, if you've been a Christian for a while, and, and this has experienced me on a few occasions, maybe it was when you first became a Christian, or maybe it was the first time you went to like a major Christian event where there was thousands of people, and you just feel so connected to God, you say something like this, God, this is amazing, you can take me to heaven now. And what happens sometimes, rather than getting back and getting on mission, we try to like recreate that experience again. Like that becomes our new mission. I'm going to feel that again. I'm going to find, I'm going to bounce from church to church to church or from Christian conference or Christian concert to feel that again. I just want to invite you as Christians, that's heaven. If you trust in Christ, you're going to get there. Be on mission. And your mission is to make disciples, not, not experience some amazing experience. God will walk with you. Jesus has promised to be with us. The beautiful thing at the end of Exodus 40 as we've gone through 40 chapters, we are out of Egypt, and now we are onward with God. Israel was onward together. Brothers and sisters who have trusted Christ, we're onward together. I pray that we guard the unity of the church, that we face our trials and tribulations with love and patience and forbearance, but we don't forget the mission. To see other people know and follow Jesus Christ, to find life in his name, Heaven and hell are real places. Eternity is something we will all face. And we have the privilege of helping people know the one who saves and takes them to heaven. Let me just pray that we would be on mission before we take the supper together. Father, you are good and your love endures forever. I thank you for your faithfulness to the people of Israel. Thank you for the mighty redemption and rescue of the people of Israel out of Egypt. I thank you for the giving of the law and the construction of the tabernacle that you, would, that you set up a mercy seat where atonement could be made, that you sent uh, your glorious presence to be among the people and to lead them. And all that, according to the book of Hebrews, is a shadow of the reality that has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. That his finished work is the greatest finished work of all time. That the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the greatest gift we could possibly imagine. And now we're set out on a, a glorious mission. And I pray that we would do it together. We would be faithful. And that you would receive the glory and the honor and the praise. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.